everyone. I'm Mike Ward and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a video series brought to you by DRG, part of Clarivate. This episode is one of a number that we're recording alongside on Helix, the digital conference that has been hosted by One Nucleus. In line with this, I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Many Pangalos, who uh, will be offering us insights from uh, the big pharma perspective. <clears throat> Sir Many is the Executive Vice President for Biopharmaceuticals Research and Development at AstraZeneca, the UK's largest company uh, by market cap and one of the world's leading innovative pharma companies. So many, um, I hope you and, and those you care about are keeping safe and well and, and thanks so much for, 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 for joining me. It's my pleasure, thanks for having me. Um, AstraZeneca um, has a very, very strong presence uh, in China. Um, and you know, clearly that was the, sort of the start of the, uh, the, pan the COVID-19 pandemic. What lessons were, were you able to learn you know, in the early days of the, sort of the COVID-19 spread and how have they shaped your thinking you know, as the pandemic has sort of taken hold elsewhere? Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a great question. And of course, it's, a, it's going to be rather a long answer, I have to say, um, because it, what happened in China really has um, been the foundation of everything that we've been doing since. So as you say, we have a, we have a large business in China um, and we we caught wind of the the virus and what was clearly not um, just the flu um, in mid to late December. And we started to think about what are the things that we can do to start to help our, initially our Chinese colleagues, but then ultimately as it started to become clear that this was like to become a global issue, what can we do um, to, to help you know, generally um, around the world. The first thing that we did was to think about molecules that we have in our pipeline as we started to understand the virus more and as the sequence was published, as we started to understand some of the um, pathologies and symptoms that were being seen in the patients that were being hospitalized. We wanted to see whether there were any molecules within our existing pipeline of developing molecules that were being developed or molecules that were already approved to see if it could handle or treat any of the, um, the symptoms or um, pathophysiology of, of, of the disease. And so that led to um, several programs being developed in, in clinical studies. The first one was our BTK inhibitor. It's a molecule called Calquent, who has actually, it's actually been approved for hematological malignancies. But the pathway or the kinase that inhibits is actually a very broad anti-inflammatory kinase. And we thought it could be very useful in treating the cytokine storm and COVID-19 disease in, in severely ill patients. And so there was a small study that we ran in the US, which um, generated some highly positive data. It was published in Science Immunology. And that's kicked off um, a number of phase two and phase three programs now with Calquins in the more severely ill patients that are basically in the intensive care unit or about to go into intensive care to try and get them off intensive care and dampen down the inflammatory response. We've also been working uh, in the UK with various of the various of the, the basket protocols that are running um, Accord in particular. We have two molecules in there. Calquins actually is one that's gone into Accord. The other one is an anti-L33, also another broad anti-inflammatory. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody that's uh, starting to dose. One of the other things that we saw in patients was that their organs were failing uh, as they were becoming more severely ill. 
We have a drug called Forsega, which is a diabetes drug, which has been shown over the past um, year or two to not only protect diabetic patients, but also to protect patients with heart failure and with chronic kidney disease. Um, and so again, given that these are organs that are particularly vulnerable to serious COVID disease, we, we've started a phase three program looking at the impact of Forsega in more severe patients to see if we can protect their kidneys and their heart, um, which, uh, which we think is also quite exciting. So that's the first bit, is just taking molecules and repositioning molecules and seeing if we can have an impact on the course of the disease. The second thing we did is just look at our capabilities and we're one of the few companies that actually has made an antibody to a virus. Uh, this particular virus is RSV and we have two um, molecules. One is a molecule called Synergist, which is approved for treating uh, RSV in, in infants. We have another molecule that's part of the Sanofi called 8897, uh, which is currently in phase three. But that experience has given us some idea of how to develop antibodies to viruses. And so very quickly, we, just, um, we uh, created a drug discovery program aimed at creating a, a series of monoclonal antibodies that target um, SARS-CoV-2. We set up a number of internal screens as well as accessing convalescent um, uh, PBMCs from patients from around the world to try and identify monoclonal antibodies from those convalescent patient samples. And from all that, we must have screened close to 1,500 antibodies, came down to a top 10. Um, we've now got two that we've selected that are going to clinic in the next few weeks. Uh, we're gonna be doing a cocktail um, of antibodies for, as our therapeutic because we want to minimize resistance. The antibodies target the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. And we've engineered the antibodies in a way that both um, enhances their half-life, so we should hopefully only be only need to dose once every 100 to 150 days, which actually becomes quite important for the monoclonal antibody. The less frequent, the more long-lasting the, um, the, the efficacy will be, hopefully. Um, but also we've inactivated the FC receptor domain um, to make sure we don't get any antibody-dependent enhancement. So we're really trying to maximize the efficacy and minimize the potential risk um, of an antibody therapeutic. So we're very excited about the data we've generated. We've got very good preclinical data, said they're being scaled up at the moment, should be in the clinic towards the end of July, um, early August. So that was the second pillar. And then the third pillar actually that, that started was about how do we keep our medicine, medical supply, our medicines coming out of our factories? How do we keep our laboratories open? And so we set up actually COVID or SARS-CoV-2 PCR test in our labs. So we could actually screen our employees so that we know that when employees are coming into work beyond doing temperature checks and asking whether you've got any symptoms, we can actually confirm that they're COVID-19 negative or PCR negative. Uh, we're also setting up serology tests as well, but that, that was very important for us in terms of making sure that we create as safe an environment as possible in our workplace, which has enabled us to keep our labs and our, and our manufacturing plants um, uh, working. So we haven't had any disruption to our, our supply chain. Um, but as a consequence of setting up our internal testing, um, the government also asked us to consider helping become part of the Lighthouse testing facility. And so we worked with the University of Cambridge and also with GSK to set up some labor a laboratory in Cambridge that would actually become part of the Lighthouse testing to screen 30,000 PCR samples a day. And so that's got us into that space as well. 
and then as part of the all of this work that we were doing which you know i think you'll agree is fairly broad um i also happened to sit on the uk vaccines task force and on that task force there are you know various other academics and and, and companies but I also got to hear about some of the vaccine work that was going on and listening to what was happening in the UK in particular, I became quite interested in the Oxford vaccine, the Chadox one vaccine. Um, I spoke to Pascal, our CEO, about that. I spoke to John Bell, who's a researcher at Oxford University. And um, we all agreed that it made sense for us to see if we could help Oxford think about how to globalize their program in terms of clinical development, but also in terms of manufacturing. And so over a very short period of time, we reached an agreement with Oxford University to help partner, to partner with them on the Chadox-1 um, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Um, and that sort of was the finishing piece of all of the things that we're doing to try and have a, uh, an impact, not just on the UK, but on, on the world as a whole and try and get us back to the semblance of normality hopefully, over the coming months. So, it's interesting, you, sort of, you, know, you mentioned about you know, sort of doing things quickly and. <coughs> Um, uh, sort of, you know, rapidly. Normally, sort of, you know, sort of development of, you know, sort of clinical trial protocols, the sort of conduct of, of, of that kind of activity, that re-engineering normally takes, you know, quite a long time. What, what did you actually have to do, and you know, how, how were you able to put so much pace into all this activity? <laughs> It's a great question, and it gets to the question of what's going to be the new normal. Because my team are a little bit worried that I'm going to be asking them to do everything. <laughs> at that pace which obviously isn't realistic look i think so if i take about the monoclonal antibodies first people were working literally 24 7 we were working in shifts we were working weekends the regulators were being very flexible um the regulators were being very flexible in terms of how they've approached the cmc the toxicology uh, it's really been a, a um a partnership and we've just worked really really fast and obviously we, we've done some things that we wouldn't normally do in terms of how rapidly you move. You know, you might take a bit more time to optimize. You might take a bit more time to get the clones identified. We've done a lot of things in parallel rather than in series. And I do think as a consequence of what we've done, because it has worked out, we've got, you know, 10 really potent antibodies, um, that actually you can do it this way. So I think for some of our programs going forward, it won't be for everything, but for some of them, the ones that we really see as being very high priority or very competitive, I think there are some things that we will do differently. So with, with, with the vaccine, the Oxford University group had done a remarkable job with um, you know, Andy Pollard, Sarah Gilbert, um, and Adrian Hill from the Jenner Institute, you know, really, I think, getting a supply chain in place, which I think is quite remarkable for a university to do that. They've got a, they had a large phase one, two, three program planned in the UK. And what we've really done is hopefully just help them expand that to become an even more uh, significant global development program with 30,000 patients in the UK, hopefully between five and 10,000 patients in Brazil, um, phase three programs in Africa, um, and probably more importantly, just the huge supply chain to supply what now is hopefully almost 2 billion doses around the world, um, funded by BARDA, CEPI and Gavi, the Gates Foundation, um, the European Union, the, the, there's all sorts of different groups that have participated. And it's really become a supply chain, which I think only a global company could do in terms of helping them get into place, but also making sure because of the politic, polit politics of supply of vaccines, 
they're independent supply chains, so no one can actually hoard and say it's my vaccine, you can't have any. So we've created supply chains in the UK, in Europe, in the US, and in international regions. So we're quite proud of that. And obviously it's been done at tremendous speed, a huge amount of tech transfer needed. Um, and I'm not sure uh, our CMC colleagues would ever want this to become the new normal, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, with um, you know, some of the surveys that we've done here at DRG, um, you know, we've sort of you know, identified that you know, healthcare professionals, <clears throat> they're interacting differently with, with, with patients. We, uh, you know, particularly patients who are not COVID-19 uh, impacted. And also we've seen sort of, uh, sort of slowdowns of, of yeah. clinical trials in other spaces, in other therapy areas, or in fact, the initiation of some trials has been put on hold. Yes. What, 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 what yeah, with all the activity you're doing, what, what have you had to put on the back burner and, and what processes have you put in place to sort of, you know, mitigate the, the destruction else in other therapeutic areas? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And of course, like everybody else, we've had to prioritize our work. And, you know, we have had people working from home. We did for a period of time significantly reduce the work in our laboratories. And we still have a, a reduced workload in our laboratories because we have people socially distanced. We have people um, wearing masks, obviously. Um, but we have kept our labs running. So from a manufacturing perspective, we haven't missed a beat in terms of supply. There's been no impact at all on our um supply of medicines around the world in terms of clinical development i would say in late stage development so late phase two phase three in particular there's been almost no impact on our programs a little bit of a, of a delay perhaps but generally speaking i would say over 85 percent of our programs have remained on track and that's generally because the drugs by that stage are either known to, are known to be effective and so patients want to take them because it's actually helping whatever the disease or illness they're suffering from. Now, we've had a couple of programs in asthma, uh, particularly in milder asthma, that have been impacted because obviously the risk for a mild asthmatic of going in, given they're suffering from asthma, which is one of the, the potential risk factors for SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, that, that, that has been paused. That study was paused in late, but otherwise, in late stage, everything has largely remained on track. The story in early development is a little bit different and it's very disease area dependent. So in oncology, I would say we've seen relatively little impact because in early stage studies in oncology, patients tend to be quite ill. And so again, the risk benefit for them to take a new oncology drug is actually favorable because hopefully the oncology drug will have an impact on the disease and will keep the patients alive. In respiratory and cardiometabolic renal, particularly in healthy volunteer studies, obviously we've had to pause a lot of those studies and, and think about going to areas of the world where COVID-19 is on a decline versus on the uptick. And so we've had to sort of rejuggle where we do certain things, but definitely more of an impact in biofarm in my, in my part of the shop versus in oncology. Um, so I'd say relatively little impact in late, a bit of impact in early and in early it's disease area specific more in the uh, respiratory and cardiovascular metabolic space in research we really focused on on prioritizing the, the the pipeline in terms of the activity so that the people that were coming in were working on things that were going to have the biggest impact to us as an organization in terms of our pipeline 
Um, and that in itself, whilst it is you know, clearly slowed some of the you know, target identification and earlier stage screening programs, it's meant that we can keep our most important programs on time. And if I look at some of the groups that we have that are doing you know, early um, drug substance manufacturing, early antibody uh, manufacturing for some of our programs that are entering the clinic, They've, they've probably been more productive than ever because they've been so focused on delivering just a few things that they've actually delivered more than they've ever delivered in that regard. So, um, again, I think there's some learnings there for us in terms of some of the ways that we work. So I would say we've seen a bit of a, de a, 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 a slowdown in early research and a bit of a slowdown in some of our phase one, two programs, more so in, in the non-oncology indications. And, and what about the sort of you know in the sort of the regulatory space? Because um, again, we've, we've no, there's seen been no no yep. problems in regulatory. No re regulatory actually. People, I mean, again, the odd instance of the odd program because people are focusing right now on doing SARS-CoV-2 clinical studies, and so some things have you know been paused. But actually, for the most important programs, we haven't seen a delay in anything with you know the EMA or. MHRA or FDA, um, things have very much stayed on track in terms of regulatory timing so far. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, you, you, you've already, you know, sort of kind of highlighted, you know, some of the, sort of the how how agile, how quickly the, the sort of the life sciences industry has has responded to this crisis. Yeah. Um, one of one of the interesting initiatives that um, you know quite surprised me was. You know that COVID R and D consortium where we've got lots and lots of pharmaceutical companies all getting together to you know sort of really tackle this. And you know I know that you're you're part of that process. So how how did you get involved and, and you know how you know what has impressed you about that development? Yeah, I mean it's, again it's 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 been really nice to see actually because i think you know our industry isn't always portrayed in the best light and i have to say seeing how quickly we all came together and thanks to andy plump who's the head of r d at takeda and rupert bessie who's the uh, um one of the heads of r d at, at, at bms now um you know and, and they, they, they they're good friends and colleagues and they just brought us together you know they sent a note around saying would you be interested in participating and just sharing more than anything experiences and ideas around repositioning, around how we're working in the environment, you know, trying to learn from each other. Um, and it, it was it's just a, it's a great meeting. We would get together twice a week. Of course, many of us can't often make it because we've got lots of other things to do, but we're circulating minutes, we're calling each other up. You know, I was on the, on the phone to Matai Maman yesterday, who's from J&J, &J, and they're working on a, on, on a competing vaccine. Um, and and competing is not the right word. And I think that's probably the big difference is, you know, when you talk about something like SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 as a disease, whilst we normally compete with each other, we all want to solve what's a really big problem for the world. And so, you know, whenever I speak to a reporter or have an interview, I say, you know, I don't really care whose vaccine works. You know, I hope it's ours and our antibodies work and some of the reposition of our molecules work because I hope that we can have an impact on the disease. But in all honesty, I'll be just as happy if it's J&J's vaccine or Moderna's vaccine. I just want someone to get some things that work that can protect the population and get us back to normality. And I think that's the mindset that we all have when we're talking about this. You know, we, there's a 
a healthy competition because we're all very proud of what we do. But first and foremost, we want to be successful as an industry to try and treat this terrible disease that's having such a huge impact around the world. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, in the forefront of all of our minds. And that's what I think has been so great about, about us getting together and seeing how we can help each other, where it makes sense to help each other, what data we can share. And actually, if you look at what the FDA are doing now with the, you know, through Operation Warp Speed, and, and you know, they've picked five vaccines. They've also got a set of monoclonal antibodies that they've picked. And you know, we're lucky enough to be in both of these um, sets of meetings because of what we've done so far. But, you know, they've got five vaccine companies and we're all working together to define endpoints for the clinical studies, the way we run the assays in, in the labs to make sure we're comparing apples to apples. And we're really all working together to come up with a set of parameters that we can all use so that we make the right choices and decisions about which vaccines are working the best in which patient population. Yeah, sure. And uh, I mean, looking beyond, um, you know, sort of, you know, COVID nineteen, um, you know, because clearly there, there, there have been alliances. You know, you're working with academic groups, um, uh, you know, biotechs uh, and, and other people. Um, social social distancing and and that ability to meet people. How is that actually sort of you know, impacting beyond COVID nineteen? The sort of you know the the establishment of, of new uh, partnerships um, in, in the biotech space? Um, no, with, uh, look, we're all getting used to a new normal. You know, we're doing things through Zoom and MS Teams. I mean, we, you know, we've, so we, we've, we've generated collaborations and partnerships with pretty much every major country or region around the world. And we've done it all through Zoom and Teams. Um, you know, we've done a, a deal with silence. Um, we've done a deal, we, we, you know, we, we, we've done, we continue to do deals with, with biotech companies, with universities. We're all just working in a different way. We're traveling less, right? We've got a, you know, a much healthier carbon footprint. There are a, a lot of pros in terms of the, some of these new ways of working. I've never slept better, I have to say, not traveling across the Atlantic every other week. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'm getting to see my children a little bit more often as well, which is, you know, there's, there's some definitely some some benefits to this as well. So face-to-face -face interactions are important. I don't think we're ever going to go back to the way we were in terms of how intense our travel was and how much we had to do everything face-to-face. -face. I think it will hopefully become a much healthier blend of virtual meetings like this and face-to-face -face meetings. And it's been very interesting, even looking at meetings like ASCO and you know, the ADA, which is the American Diabetes Association meeting. These have all been run virtually. You know, Adora, which was our Osimertinib study that was presented at ASCO, was viewed by 10,000 people. You mentioned about you know, the fact that there is kind of like going to be a new normal, the fact that you know, people might not travel around as much as they used to, um, you know, et cetera, because there are ways of you know, still being effective. Um, what what are the sort of you know lessons do you think we we will learn from this pandemic that we'll be able to take forward? I mean, you mentioned earlier on about you know the sort of speed of some things. Um, you know, what do you hope in a post-pandemic world you you will be able to uh, you know, carry on? So I think we will see um, a more balanced travel schedule 
from all companies with more virtual meetings. It's not, you know, obviously we're not going to do away with face-to-face -face interactions. They're hugely important, but I think you'll see a more balanced use of face-to-face -face versus virtual. I think we'll see that also at key scientific symposia. They'll become a blend of virtual and face-to-face -face because I think it'll actually enable the science to be accessed by more people, which I think is really important. Um, I hope that we'll continue to see flexibility with regula regulators in terms of how we interact with them and their ability to, to pivot a little bit more quickly and think about some different ways of working, which I think will be really, really uh, useful and important. Um, you know, I th think we're going to see more people working from home than we used to. I think, you know, a more flexible work environment. I think the way, you know, the days of everyone being in the office, particularly because I don't think social distancing is going to disappear for some time. So I think as a consequence, many of our facilities aren't actually um, built to have the capacity for everyone being next, you know, socially distanced. Um, so that I think is going to have an impact as well. Um, and then this, you know, for us, again, prioritization, I think thinking about how we move our, our most important projects at an even faster speed. We used to do them fast, but I think we've come up with some ways of doing them even faster now, which I think is, uh, is going to be interesting to see how we can replicate some of the things that we've done for our COVID programs. Great. So, Manny, thank you very much for taking the time to, to talk to us today. Um, you know, so the story um, that you've told uh, is fascinating. I'm sure it's going to be of great interest to the audience. Um, you know, clearly we all wish you uh, and all your other colleagues in, in, in other companies, you know, the best of uh, best of luck in, um, in, 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 in making progress there. Um, so if you'd like to uh, tune into future conversations in healthcare, follow our LinkedIn page uh, where we'll be posting uh, alerts to, uh, to, to future um, uh, episode releases. So in closing, I'd like to thank uh, many again for joining us and, and thank all our listeners for, for tuning in. Until next time, uh, stay uh, safe and healthy. My name is Mike Ward. I'll see you in the next episode.